Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I am a little scaredy cat when it comes to predatory animals. Of all my fears, this very well may top my list. The thought of seeing a bear or mountain lion or some other predatory cat out in the wild scares the bejeebers out of me. Uh, last year, I went on one of my personal spiritual retreats where I spend alone time with God, and I spend a couple days out in nature by myself. And this morning, I, I want to read a couple bits from my journal during the retreat, not this past year, but the year before. I never really intend, uh, intended to share any of this with anyone. These are just my thoughts and prayers being put pen to paper. But I wanted to read you guys my journal entries so you guys don't think I'm exaggerating like we often may do after uh, a year or two of telling a story. And so while I was uh, first arrived at uh, my personal spiritual retreat last year, I wrote, the campground is very primitive. No bathrooms, only portageons. There are over 250 sites, but I'm the only one checking in today. I still have yet to see another person camping here. I've seen one tent and one car. And then a little later, I wrote, I have read a handful of chapters in Isaiah. It is hard for me to focus as I keep looking around at little noises. I'm a bit spooked out. I checked the car, and it was an old abandoned car. That means no one is within about a mile radius from as far as I can tell. I'd be less spooked out if I wasn't totally alone. So last year, I intended to camp at the Hocking Hills State Park. How many of you guys have been to Hocking Hills before? A uh, beautiful place uh, to visit if you've not uh, been there before. So I intended to, to camp at the uh, state park. However, instead, I accidentally reserved a site at a completely remote campground that had nothing to do with the state park. Uh, it was uh, a bit of a journey because I didn't have my phone or anything either. And so I pulled up to the wrong campground, and I had no idea where I was going. But eventually, I found out where I was camping. And as I got to this campground, there was no bathrooms or anything. The only thing worse than a campground bathroom is a campground portachon. Uh, but as I arrived at this uh, campground, I was pretty spooked out being there essentially by myself because there's over 250 sites at this campground. And when I first pulled in, I only saw one other tent. I didn't see any other people with that. And I saw one other car that wasn't with the tent. Uh, later that evening, I, I went and took a stroll, and I saw that this is like an old abandoned car that, uh, by the looks of it, has been there for a very long time. And uh, so as far as I could tell, I was pretty much uh, by myself uh, within quite a big radius. I, I couldn't see anybody else around me. So I remember sitting down at my campsite and looking around at every little noise that I heard. And it was absolutely scaring me, creeping me out, and it made it difficult for me to focus in on God. Uh, because if you are focusing in on your, fear, on your fears, where's your focus not on? Your focus isn't on God. And so my, my focus was a lot on my fears as I was fearful of these, this black bear that could be right around the bush or bobcat, mountain lion, you name it. Uh, I, I was scared. I was freaked out. And so I, I continue along that night, and, and I wrote in my uh, journal, I said, right after writing this, uh, this bit about me being spooked out because I'm the only one nearby, looking around, looking behind me, you know, what, what was that noise? Right after writing this, 
I read Isaiah 51, 12, which reads, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid? How cool is that? Am I right? And, and so I wrote, wow, God communicating again to me? Question mark. I think so. God is good. I love you, God. And so my nerves have calmed tremendously. I am putting my trust in God. God, I am putting my trust in you this week. And then next entry I wrote, Isaiah 52, 12 reads, the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Rear guard. Uh, <laughs> man. Uh, <laughs> it's why I, I wrote, uh, my oh my, I need God in my rear guard this morning. So I wrote, God comfort, comforting me more that he is my rear guard. No longer do I have to worry about what is behind me. It gives me the chills just reading that uh, again and me being there spooked out because of all of these little noises around me and as I'm seeking communion with God, uh, establishing an intimate relationship with God through the intimate exchange of thoughts and feelings. As I'm sitting there reading, I read Isaiah 51, 12, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you to be afraid and then one chapter later, Isaiah 52, 12, where God tells me, I am your rear guard. And immediately there, there, there was a sense of relief that came over me, and he helped calm my nerves and calm my worries. I felt like God was directly communicating to me and saying, Kyle, I am he who comforts you. Kyle, who are you to be afraid Kyle, I am your rear guard. You don't have to be afraid. I don't have to worry about what is going on around me. And I find that absolutely amazing. That God in the midst of all of his power, his knowledge, and his responsibility of being the God of all, he had enough care to answer my prayer about me being a little scaredy cat of predatory animals. God cared about that individual desire that I had, that desire of being comforted in a spooky moment for me. And so although it may seem small that this instance, this is one of five instances in my life where I'm confident that God directly answered my prayer and or communicated uh, with me. I'm a huge fan uh, of on the uh, Apple system, whether the iPhone, uh, laptop, or uh, computer. They have this uh, notes app, and, my, and so I jot down notes, multiple notes every single day, it seems like, and multiple different folders uh, of these different notes that I'm take, jotting down just throughout the day. Uh, very beneficial. Uh, but one of uh, my notes uh, in this uh, notes app, there are ways in which God has answered my prayers in which God has communicated with me. And I cannot recommend that enough of you physically writing down the ways in which God has answered your prayers and the ways in which God has directly communicated with you. If you have an open mind, an open heart, an open spirit, 
with, with, with the way in which God interacts with you, you're going to see God moving in your life. And so th- this is just one of five instances in my life where I've jotted down where, where I am confident. I have many other instances where I think, yeah, hey, I, I think that could probably be God communicating with me. But five instances where without a doubt, I'm confident God was communicating with me. And, and that is amazing. Amazing that the God of all creation communicating directly with me, answering my very, very specific prayers. And this morning, I'm here to tell you that you have that same power as well. You have the ability to communicate directly with the God of all of creation. And he's a God that listens to his children. And there's tremendous power in communicating with the God who hears and listens to our requests. And so today we're, we're, we're going to focus on the tremendous power that we have through prayer as we continue our series on communion with God. The series, the, the series communion with God is all about prayer. As for the sake of this series, that's what we define prayer as communion with God. And what's communion with God? Communion with God is the establishment of an intimate relationship through the exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings. And when it boils down to it, that's what prayer is. As we're seeking to establish this intimate relationship with God, as we exchange these intimate thoughts and feelings. So thus far in our series, we've taken a look at a couple of important questions and concepts revolving around prayer. We've looked at what prayer is. We've taken a look at why in the world pray in the first place to a God who knows all. Uh, we've taken a look at how to pray, how to talk to God. And last week, we took a look at saying less when we seek God in prayer. If you miss any of these previous messages, you can catch them on our YouTube page uh, where, where you can view any of the previous messages that you may have missed. And so to, this morning, to help us see the tremendous power that we have in prayer, we're going to read a story from Exodus chapter 32. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 32. And let me tell you, ever since I decided that we were going to do the series on prayer, I was excited to read this specific story to see the power that we have in prayer. Uh, We're going to start reading the story here. And some of you guys are going to be thinking, how in the world does this uh, prove the the type of power that we have in prayer? But hopefully by the end of it, you'll see how awesome the, the, this passage is in showing the type of power that you and I have in prayer. I've been very excited to go over the story. So let me help set the scene for you. Uh, the book of Exodus is all about the Exodus. Uh, you guessed it. Uh, all about uh, when Moses, uh, he took the Israelites uh, who were enslaved in Egypt. And uh, I say Moses, but really it's God working through Moses, freed the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. And so God sent the 10 plagues on Egypt to get a Pharaoh to release the Israelites. After the 10th and final plague where all of their firstborn sons died, uh, Finally, Pharaoh said, all right, I've had enough. Get out of my land. Get out of here. Well, before uh, we know it, uh, Pharaoh, uh, he, he's second-guessing himself here, and he decides to chase and pursue the Israelites. Well, God, uh, he splits the Red Sea. 
through Moses. Um, and so the Israelites were able to cross the sea on dry ground, but then the sea crashed over Pharaoh and all of his army. And so God performed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle in freeing these Israelites, his chosen people, from being enslaved in the nation of Egypt. And so here was this large people group that had hundreds of thousands of people who had no home. They, they were nomads at this point. And then in chapter 19, we see that God appeared before the Israelites. And you should reach chapter 19 on your own time. It's a terrific scene of thunder, of lightning, of fire, of thick clouds, and a trumpet blast as God appears to, to this people group, these Israelites. And so as God appears to uh, the, the, this people of Israel, God delivered 10 commandments to the Israelites. The first two commandments that God delivers to them is number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And number two, you shall not make a carved image. Remember these two commandments, no other gods before me, and uh, you should not make a carved image. Uh, they're they're going to come, uh, they're going to be important when this story plays out here. And so the Israelites, they were terrified, uh, probably very similar to me being uh, off on my own. They were terrified by this terrific interaction with God. And so uh, the Israelites actually told Moses, hey, Moses, uh, tell God not to communicate with us directly anymore. Instead, have God uh, communicate with you, Moses, and then Moses, you come and communicate with me. And, and so that's the system that, that God then follows through with, with the Israelites. And so Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and God delivers more rules that Moses is to then deliver to the Israelites. According to chapter 24 of Exodus verse 18, Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. So 40 days, God was communicating, establishing this intimate relationship with Moses. He was, uh, part of this time, he was giving Moses uh, a list of commandments that he was to give to the Israelites, as that's what the Israelites wanted. They didn't want uh, God talking to them directly anymore, for they were terrified. So that's where we pick up in this story in chapter 32 of Exodus. As Moses is up on Mount Sinai, he's receiving these commands from, uh, from God. And so what do we see with uh, everybody else? We see that in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. It reads, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. Moses and Aaron were like the two key leaders for uh, this people group at this time. And so Moses was away. And so the people looked to Aaron to be their leader while Moses was up uh, communicating with God. And so uh, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And so while Moses was up on the Mount Sinai with God, Aaron and the Israelites, they get a little restless. And so these Israelites, they come up with this marvelous plan that they would build a golden calf and they would worship it as a god. And not just any God, but they would worship this golden calf as the God who freed them from the hand of the Egyptians. 
exactly what their God just got done doing for them. You know, this concept of building a golden calf and worshiping it as a god may seem a little ludicrous to us in our society, as nobody really does that in the West in the 21st century. But this practice was much more common back in the time of Moses. This was very much the norm for the nations that surrounded Israel. And so these people, they build this calf and worship it as the god. Now remember, just before this, God got done telling the Israelites, he listed out these 10 commands. The very first two commandments that God gives these people is one, don't have any other gods before me, and two, do not make a carved image. What do we see the Israelites doing? We see them, one, making a God before Yahweh, our, our heavenly father, and we see them, two, making a carved image. Broken the, these very first two rules that God has established with them. And so what, what's God going to do about this? How, how is God going to respond to, to this awful, inconsiderate act by Aaron and the Israelites? Well, we see God's plan of action starting in verse 7. It reads in verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And so God, he, he, he sees uh, the, the, this group of people, his chosen people, as God is all-knowing. He sees them building this golden calf and worshiping it as a God who freed them from the hand of the Egyptians. And God reports this to Moses, and he tells Moses, look, Look at this people that, that you freed out of Egypt. They're breaking the very commands that I just freshly gave to them. And they're worshiping a, a, a silly golden calf as the God who freed them from the hand of the Egyptians. He calls them a stiff, naked people. And so what's God going to do about this? Well, God says in verse 10, Now therefore... Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And so God's plan of action was that he was going to destroy them all right then and there. He's going to build a new nation descending from Moses. As God, he, he's an infinite God. God has no beginning and he has no end. He, he's very patient. He's very patient with mankind. And he's willing to start over with Moses and wait hundreds of years for this new nation to grow. As he saw that this was not going to work with this people group, these Israelites. As they've just broken these very commands that God gave them. And God saw this was not going to work. And, and so he was just going to start over with Moses. And through Moses, they, they would build this new strong nation. And he was going to wipe out Aaron and the rest of the Israelites. But what does Moses think of this plan? We see what Moses thinks in, in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord, that, that strong verbiage there. Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I promise I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And so Moses responds to God. And Moses here, he does not beat around the bush. Essentially, Moses tells God that he can't possibly wipe out these people after saving them from Egypt. For, for he told God, what are the Egyptians going to think? The Egyptians are going to see that, that you freed your people, your chosen people, the Israelites. You brought them into the wilderness just to kill them. The Egyptians, they're going to mock you, God. They're going to mock you. You can't, you can't do this. And then Moses brings up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also known as Israel. The, the patriarchs of this family. The patriarchs of the Israelites. And Moses tells God, God, you promised them. You promised them that through them you would build a great nation. Through them they would inherit this promised land forever. What are you going to do about that? <laughs> it's very, very bold here by Moses, essentially directly opposing the plan that God verbalized to Moses. And so what does God do about this? What does God do in response to Moses' prayer to God? Verse 14, this is the key here. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You see, God had it set that he was going to destroy this people. This unfaithful group of people who have already broken these commands I mean, that, that is so inconsiderate to do that to anybody, nonetheless, the God who freed them from the hand of the Egyptians. However, after Moses prayed to God, God changed his course of action. Now, some scholars uh, might disagree, but it appears to me, had Moses not prayed to God, Asking for God to spare the Israelites, God would have wiped Aaron and the rest of the Israelites out. It's recorded there in scriptures. That was God's plan. He was going to consume them and he was going to start a new nation with Moses. It's very, uh, very similar to, to the story uh, of Noah. If you remember from uh, Genesis chapter 6, and, and God, he, he's uh, created mankind. They've fallen from sin. They've fallen far from God. And God says, all right, I'm going to wipe my hands clean of this, and I'm going to start fresh with Noah's family. And so God sends uh, the floods, and, and all of mankind outside of Noah and his family, they died right then and there, as these were a wicked and rebellious people. And so God was going to start over with Noah. And that appears to me that's what God was going to do with Moses here. He's going to start a new nation with Moses. However, because of one thing, because of one thing, because Moses prayed, Aaron and the rest of the Israelites were spared from God's wrath right then and there. Because Moses prayed to God, their lives were saved. That's the power that you have in prayer. You have the power to move the hand of the one who holds 
the world. If you're not amazed by that, somewhere along the road, you're, you're, you're missing the point. That you can move the hand of the one who holds the world. There's tremendous, there's no greater power than we can attain through the power of prayer. Now at this point, some of you guys are probably wondering, well, I thought God couldn't change his mind. And how can he say, God, he couldn't change his mind, and yet here we see in Exodus 32, where it seems like God changed his course of action, and maybe you could then make the point that God changed his mind. This concept of God not being able to change his mind comes from Numbers 23, 19, and 1 Samuel 15, 29. Numbers 23, 19 states that God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. And then the, and the NIV and NASB and a handful of other translations, 1 Samuel 15, 29 states that God is not a man that he would change his mind. And so how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile the, the, these two passages and many translations which read that God can't change his mind? And yet what we see here in Exodus 32, we see that God was going to destroy this people and then Moses prayed to God, and then God decided that he was not going to destroy this people. It, it, it sounds like God is changing his mind here. So how in the world do we reconcile the, these two verses? Are they contradicting one another? I think the REV commentary has a lot of good things uh, to say about these two verses in Numbers 23, 19 and 1 Samuel 15, uh, 29. So I'm going to read a, a quote from the REV commentary, a, a little lengthy here, as they explain that this process, these two verses, and what maybe uh, the authors are saying when God uh, can't change his mind. And so, quote, the Hebrew word translated change his mind, and later in the verse changes his mind is nahim. This verse has been considered difficult by some people because it seems to contradict what God has said in other places. But the resolution to the apparent contradiction is to realize that 1 Samuel 15, 29, one of those passages where, where it reads that God can't change his mind, is spoken in a very specific context. And in this specific incident, the context of Samuel telling Saul that God does not change his mind. He will not change his mind about removing Saul from being the king of Israel. It's important to see the specific context here in verse 29, because a few verses earlier in 1 Samuel 15, 11, I wish we had enough time to read through this. You can read through this on your own. Uh, in many translations, they read, God said he regretted making Saul king. And the Hebrew word translated regret is nahim. The, the, the same word that's translated as uh, change your mind. Um, uh, Nahim, the same word that occurs here in verse 29. If we do not see the specific context of Samuel's remark, then Samuel contradicts what God had just said a few verses earlier. God said he regretted that, that word Nahim making Saul king and changed his mind about it. Nahim in verse 11, but Samuel says God does not change his mind. Nahim in verse 29. Furthermore, there are other verses in the Bible where God says he changes his mind. Exodus 32, 14, what we just read here, Jeremiah 18, 8, Jonah 3, 10. And these would also contradict Samuel's statement if it was a general one. 
And so you skip down a bit in the commentary, and they write, There are many times when God's decision is not firm, and he changes his mind when people have a change of heart and behavior. That is why God regretted Nahim making Saul king and changed his mind, Nahim, about other things as well. So that, that, that was a, a big uh, quote there. So essentially, what the commentators of the REV are saying is that here in 1 Samuel 15 and Numbers 23, when it's stated that God does not change his mind, it's said in a specific context that, that maybe doesn't apply to all time. I, I, I compare this to uh, if we had up here a plate of cookies and there were two cookies left and you guys wanted the cookies, I want the cookies, and I ate these two last cookies. I could tell you guys, I ate all of the cookies. Now, what that does not mean is that I ate all the cookies in the entire world. When I use that word all, it's used in a very limited sense. I ate all of the cookies here. But you guys understand me if we had the plate of cookies here. You guys would understand me very clearly what I would mean when I said I ate all of the cookies. You know, sometimes when we use these strong words, none, all, no, yes, they're used in a limited sense, not an absolute sense, not, not something that is true 100% of the time, uh, 100 places, 100% of the places. And so here, I think that there's good reason in Numbers 23 and 1 Samuel uh, 15 to believe that, that these uh, occurrences, the, these writings where it reads that God can't change his mind, they're talked about in a limited sense. In uh, Numbers 23, the specific instance is with Balaam prophesying uh, to the people. You remember the story of Balaam and the donkey. And then in 1 Samuel 15, as the REV commentators talked about, is a story uh, of Samuel and uh, how Samuel said that God was not going to change his mind. He will not change his mind about removing Saul from being the king of Israel. And so I think, and this might be a bit controversial to some, maybe not everyone here would agree with me in this sense, but I think there's good reason to believe that we can impact the decisions that God makes. It appears to me that's exactly what Moses did. Where God, it's written in scriptures, God told Moses his plan was he's going to wipe out this people. Then Moses prayed to God. And then all of a sudden we see God changes his course of action. Another common example would be in Genesis 18 when Abraham intercedes for Sodom, where God initially stated that he was going to uh, spare Sodom only if there were 50 righteous people. Well, after Abraham dialogues with God, uh, Abraham says, well, God, what, what if there's 40 righteous people? Then will you save the, the city of Sodom? And God says, yes. And then it goes down to 30, then 20, and then 10. And so God initially had planned that he would spare the city of Sodom if 50 righteous people were found in the city. But then after uh, Abraham prayed to God, God agreed that, that he would spare the city if there were only 10 righteous people in the city. Spoiler alert, there weren't even 10 righteous people in that city. And so God, uh, he, he cleansed the city of Sodom. But I think we have a number of instances throughout scripture where we see where God had a, a planned course of action and through prayer, God changes that course of action. And so that indicates to me that we can impact God's plan of action. We can impact the plan of action of the God who holds the world in his hands. That is tremendous, tremendous power. 
And now some of you are thinking about your spouse, your father, your mother, your child, your sibling, or your dear friend, that loved one that you prayed ever so hard for God to heal them, yet they fell asleep in death. Some of you guys may be asking, Kyle, how can you say prayer is so powerful when I prayed for healing, yet healing did not come and my loved one passed away? The truth of the matter is I don't have a great answer to this. We live in a world that is broken and cursed by sin. Before sin entered the picture, mankind did not have to worry about this. Mankind did not have to worry about sickness and sorrow and pain and death. But because of sin, because of disobedience to God, the world was broken, the world was cursed, and all of a sudden, pain enters the picture, sickness enters the picture, sorrow enters the picture, and unfortunately, death enters the picture as well. You know, God offers us salvation from this broken and cursed world, but the fulfillment of this salvation is not going to take place until Jesus establishes God's kingdom here on earth. And until then, we have to suffer the consequences of sin, these grave, awful consequences of sin. And so death, mortality entered into this picture, concepts that we all unfortunately have had to familiarize ourselves with. Now I'll borrow from Craig Rochelle here. Craig Rochelle says, he may not have healed you yesterday. He may not heal you today. He may not heal you tomorrow but God is still a healer. That's a hard truth. That's the absolute truth. God may or may not have healed you or your loved one, but I'm telling you, he is still a healer. There are many instances where this holds true in the Bible, where God provides healing. I know of a handful of instances where God has provided healing in our lifetime as well. I'm sure many of you can point to specific circumstances where there's no other reason than think that God provided healing in that situation. And so I want to encourage you guys to not lose faith when you pray for healing, but that healing doesn't come. This is a consequence of living in a world that is broken and cursed by sin. But as we live in a world that is broken and cursed by sin, through Christ Jesus, we have direct access to the throne of God. We have direct access to the God of all of creation. And to me, it seems when reading through the scriptures, the only authoritative source of truth that we have to me, it seems like our prayers make a difference. They make a difference. To me, it seems like had Moses not prayed to God on behalf of Aaron and the Israelites, 
it seems pretty clear to me that God was going to wipe them out because of prayer. That prayer changed everything. Prayer makes a difference today in the 21st century. Can I get an amen, church? Amen. Prayer is powerful. And it's time that we as the church in America realize the true potential of the power that we have in prayer. As we have the power to move the hand of the one who holds the world. Power to bring, uh, prayer is the power to bring the, the power of heaven down to earth. And we need to realize this power and we need to pray big church. Pray big because those prayers, they make a difference. They make a difference to a God who listens to his children, to a father who loves and cares for his children. Even when it's something silly, like being scared out in the middle of nature by yourself, when it's probably just a raccoon or a squirrel, God still answers our prayers. And that prayer makes a difference. And so we need to recognize the need for God's power. The power that created the heaven and the earth, the power that freed the Israelites from the Egyptians, the power that Jesus used to perform many miracles, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. We as the church in the 21st century, we need to tap into that life-giving power. God wants us to tap into that power. And so we need to understand the power that we have in prayer, as prayer is powerful. Let's pray. Father, I uh, ask that you grant us faith that extends far beyond any question or doubt, Father, a faith in you, a faith in your son, Christ Jesus, a faith, a sincere belief that you hear and answer our prayers and that our prayers truly do make a difference. So God, we just give you praise. We worship your name. We thank you for taking the time, the thought, the energy, the resources to listen to each and every one of us, each and every one of your children. God, we cannot thank you enough for that. God, I just pray that you help us use this extremely powerful tool that we have. Use it more often for your glory and for your honor. Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' precious and holy and powerful and authoritative name that we pray. Amen.